One of the draws of sports are those moments when the issue is in doubt and someone has to step up in a big moment. We love to see the clutch three-pointer, the single that drives in a runner on second in the bottom of the ninth with two outs. And we love that long field goal that splits the uprights as time expires. Now, if you're like me, though, you've been burnt before. The person at the plate has struck out to end the game. The kicker that was reliable all season, sorry, I know I'm, I'm really poking the Vikings fans here today, but the kicker that was reliable all season misses a chip shot field goal in the playoffs. And that last second shot hits off the back of the rim and bounces away as the buzzer sounds. Now, as painful as some of those moments can be, I still, like, I, I still think that we really like that tension that is created by that. What would sports be without it? What would it be like to know the result before you see it? What if the person at the plate came through every time? Now, I can't guarantee that, but I have to tell you, I, I have known some results before I saw it. Now, I'm not talking about I recorded or DVR'd a sporting event and saw the result later on and it was spoiled for me. That's not what I'm talking about. For years, I've watched Major League Baseball with the MLB.TV package. Now, because of the nature of streaming this, there's some delay and sometimes the app on my phone that gives me notifications on who is scoring and who's done what, beats, beats me or beats it before the game gets to my eyes. So many years back, several years, we were sitting on our couch and the Indians were down, I think maybe it was by three runs, bottom of the ninth, two outs, and Nick Swisher came up. And I knew it was over. You know, you, know, you have that guy, oh, he's going to strike out, right? Well, I sat there and I was actually looking for the remote to turn off the game because I, I, I was disappointed. They were going to lose. Well, before I found that little rectangle that controls the television, my phone went bling. Nick Swisher had hit a grand slam. Now, I tried to hide it because, I mean, Josh was still pretty little then, but he was watching the game in anticipation. He probably doesn't even remember it. I tried not to get too excited, but I watched. And it was one strike. It was two strikes. I mean, fouled a few off, I think. And I thought, really? But I knew the outcome. I knew the result of the game. I knew they were going to win. Instead of watching him strike out like I expected, I knew what the result was going to be. And I watched as the ball left the bat and landed in right center field about a third of the way up in the seats. I knew the result. I knew that ball was going to become a souvenir before it even left the bat. It felt good. It felt good to be confident and to know that the guy at the plate was going to come through. Now, as we approach Christmas and as we look forward to his coming in the manger to save us from our sin, we also look forward to the promise of his second coming. We know that he is going to come again. We don't know when it will happen, but we can watch in anticipation, knowing that he is going to come through. 
He is going to come again to judge the living and the dead, and He is going to take His people to Himself. We aren't going to get a notification right before it happens, but we do have the Holy Word of God, and it is sure and it is true. And we trust that He is not going to only be faithful to come again, but there's something else that we need to trust that He's going to be faithful to do. That He will work in us, that He will sanctify us and make us holy through His Word. Now, this is an important reminder for us this Christmas season. In, in the present season of our lives, everything feels uncertain, right? In the midst of this uncertainty, our hope and peace must come from the one who has come through for his people and always will do so. Now, our passage for today is relatively short, but it packs a real punch. There are multiple statements from the Apostle Paul that, that come at us, but they are so applicable to our lives as we desire to serve God in his world. So let's break down this passage a little like we always do so we can take this instruction from God's holy word and leave from here and apply it to our lives. The first thing that we're going to see as we break this passage down is that we're called to seek the will of God in our lives. Now, it's spelled out for us in this passage, and we're going to talk about this pretty clearly what that looks like. And we will see that this isn't something secret that we have to try to ascertain. It's about living a humble and godly life of prayer and thanksgiving. Secondly, we're called to abstain from evil. We are to be discerning and keep ourselves from the things that can move us away from God's will. Now, it can be hard to be discerning, but it's an important part of being faithful to the call of God on our lives. And lastly, we see that God is faithful. Not only do we know that he will be faithful to return for his people, God comes through for us to sanctify us and to prepare us for that coming day of the Lord. And so as we come to our first point today, we're going to look at the first three verses that we've read today. And as you read these three statements here by Paul, you get some short statements, but as I said before, they, they pack a punch. They're a small bite, but they're packed with nutrients. And the first thing that we're to do the first thing we see is that we're to rejoice always. Now that seems like a simple enough command, right? But those two words are obviously really hard to do. We are going to have stuff going on in our lives that is difficult. Life is tough sometimes. I think it's important that we understand that Paul isn't telling us here that we need to artificially make ourselves happy even if stuff is going wrong in our lives. We aren't to have an ear-to-ear -ear grin on the outside, but have a dark cloud on the inside. What Paul is pushing us to do here is to rejoice in the Lord. This isn't to be saccharine sweet just for the sake of being sweet. We aren't rejoicing just to rejoice. What is the driving force for motivation in living the Christian life for Paul. We have seen this so many times. It's the gospel. 
It's the truth that Christ has fully paid for my sins in his life and death and in his resurrection. And so we have hope, we have peace, and we have a certain promise of eternal life. And so if we are going to rejoice, we are going to rejoice in that truth because that's what informs our lives. That's what lets us know how to live. And we can look at the life of Paul, who is giving us this instruction, and know for sure that the life of Paul wasn't peaches and creams every day, was it? Shipwrecks, imprisonments, all kinds of persecution. Yet what does Paul do? He rejoices in the salvation that he has. Not because of anything he's done, but because of the work of Jesus Christ for him. That's what guides him. So this guy who's been shipwrecked and imprisoned is saying to you, rejoice always, even in the midst of hardship. And he also says, we're to pray without ceasing. Well, what does this mean? We know this can't be taken with a wooden literalism, right? There's no way you can pray without ceasing. You have to sleep. Now, I know some of you have probably attained a point of holiness where even your dreams are your prayers, right? Joking aside, what is this? What does it mean to pray without ceasing? Ceasing. What is Paul driving at? Well, it, it's about an attitude of submitting things to God, trusting that our only hope is that he will care for us by his sovereign and gracious hand. And so when we hear of, of trouble or we hear of people in need, we want to immediately go to God because we know that he is in control and he is the one who provides for us. But again, just like rejoicing continually, praying without ceasing is really hard. It's about having our minds directed towards the things of God instead of the things of the world. That's what it's centered on. Again, it's focused on who God is and what he's done for us. And so we see this again in the third exhortation that he has for us. And we need to remember again that this is coming from Paul. Like I said, this is the guy who was shipwrecked and imprisoned. When he says to give thanks in everything, you and I should pay attention because he has. Even in hardship that we can't imagine, he has given thanks. He had every reason to wonder why his life was so hard, didn't he? He was doing the will of God. He was the apostle who was taking the gospel of the Gentiles. Shouldn't everything be clear paths for him? Shouldn't the, the clouds open, the sunlight come down, you hear the hallelujah chorus, and Paul walks into a city, no opposition, here's the gospel, everybody believes. Isn't that the way it should be for Paul? Well, it isn't. It isn't. In our limited minds, we think that it should have been easy for Paul, but what does Paul say here, that the will of God is for us, that we should rejoice always, that we should pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. We continually think that we have to divine for ourselves the will of God for our lives. Like somehow it's secret and we can't find it. But right here, Paul spells it out for you. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. That's the will of God for your life. Easier said than done, right? But it's vital that we understand this. Some of you, right now, are going through some really difficult stuff. And you may be wondering, 
Did I miss the boat on God's will for me somewhere? Is my life hard because I haven't been obedient to what God wanted me to do? That's a difficult thing to think. To wonder if at some point you didn't miss God's secret, you weren't paying attention. Or maybe you think that maybe you messed up, you sinned someplace, and so your life is hard and you're being punished. But that isn't what is meant by the will of God when we see it in Scripture. God's will for you is to pursue Him despite the circumstances that you come up against. God's will is to be content in what He has sovereignly blessed you with. God's will is for you to keep His commands and be faithful to Him no matter what the world may say. God's will for you is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so now, what we've seen is, is what we're to do in order to pursue God's will, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks, to rejoice. But there's another element to this that is so important to us. He shows us that we're to abstain from evil. And these instructions here come across in much the same way as the first three, don't they? They're sort of, if you remember from music class, they're staccato, right? They're just popping off one after another. They're short. They're to the point. And the first one here is, is not in language that we generally use. It says, do not quench the Spirit. Now, we see that word. We see that word quench, and we would think of it as a good thing, right? We imagine uh, that athlete pouring that Gatorade down their throat. That's what we think of. We think of a commercial probably when we hear the word quench, but that's not what it means here. It's not uh, to give ourselves and to fill ourselves up with hydration. The idea of the word quench is to put something out. So the image that we're looking at here, the mental image that this gives us, it does involve water, but it isn't a good thing. Because in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is often represented as fire. So think back to the day of Pentecost and the tongues of fire resting on the heads of the apostles. We don't want to quench the Spirit. So to quench the Spirit means that you would try and douse out the Spirit's flame. And so from the next verse, we understand what this means. He tells them not to despise prophecies, but to test everything. And that last part is very important. We are to test what we hear. Now I point out regularly that the idea of prophecy in the Bible is different than what we naturally think of, right? Uh, yes, prophecy means to predict the future. That, that is a common meaning of that word. But usually in the Bible, to prophesy means to declare the word of the Lord. And that often didn't include trying to divine the future. And so with what Paul is saying here about testing everything, we have to understand that he isn't suggesting that they should just let people throw out predictions of the future, of, of prophecy, just throw them out, and we'll throw it like a baloney at the wall, and we'll see what sticks. That's, that's not the image that we're meant to see here. They are to listen to the proclamation of the word, and they're to test it. Is what's being said by whoever is proclaiming the word to them, and by whoever is proclaiming the word to you, does it line up with the Word of God? Does it line up with Scripture? Is it consistent with what they have been taught by the apostles? 
And we don't know what the situation was like in Thessalonica, but it seems like people there were proclaiming the word of the Lord, and they were just dismissing the whole thing. They were just dismissing the whole process without any discernment for the truth of that proclamation. Whether it was prophetic words such as a sermon or prophetic predictions, the point is true either way, right? What are they to do? They are to show discernment. And it's important that you and I do the same thing. When you hear someone speaking and claiming to speak for God, what should we do? We should be discerning. We want to be sure that what we are hearing is true. And this is why it is essential that we know what the Word of God says so that we can test everything and hold fast to what is good. And we want to do this because the things of God are going to be shown to us in what is true, what is right, and what is good. But Paul takes it even further. He says to abstain from every form of evil. Don't mess around with it. Not only can you be led astray, but you can damage your witness. You can give those who look up to you the impression that what you're doing is acceptable. And so abstain from all forms of evil. That is why we are called to do these things, so that we can teach what is acceptable, so that we can grow in holiness, so that we can witness to the faithfulness of God to those around us. That is why we do these things. And we've seen so far what what that looks like. We saw it with rejoice in all things, pray without ceasing, give thanks, test the prophecies, abstain from evil. We've seen it. Well, now we're going to see that there is a purpose to this. We are to be growing in holiness. Why? Because God is faithful to his covenant people. And in these two verses here that close out the passage, we see a benediction to the book of 1 Thessalonians. And it's a prayer for the people of God to grow. As we start with verse 23, I think it's so important that we see who is doing the work here. Paul has told us how we can be obedient to God and how we can grow in faith, but who does he put the process of being sanctified onto? Is he saying, this is all on you folks, get to work? Or is he saying that it comes from God? His prayer here is that God will do it. Now, if we understand the theology of Paul, he is down. He is down on human ability to save themselves. He's also down on the idea that we could grow in godliness on our own. What does he teach instead? That God is at work in his people to save them and and to grow them in holiness. And we know that God does this through means. God isn't going to just show up one morning, you're going to wake up and poof, you're holier than you were yesterday. That's not how it works. That would be nice. It would be wonderful to wake up and have the temptations of sin to go away and have our hearts inclined toward God instead of towards the things of the flesh. But that isn't how any of this works. God is working in us through his word and through the Holy Spirit. We are shaped 
by the word and the promises of God to have our desires conformed to his desires. And God uses the proclamation of the word to do this. And that is why it is important to not only read the word, but also to hear the word of God. And this is why it's so vital that we proclaim the word of God to one another. And what does this look like for Paul here? The end goal is that our whole spirit and our soul and our body would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea expressed here is that God is the one who makes us blameless. And we trust that he does this through the sacrifice of Jesus. I will not be blameless on the day of Jesus Christ because when he returns, I finally figured out how to put away all my sin. I will not be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus because I read more of the Bible and I prayed a bunch. I will be blameless. I will be blameless in the face of the final judgment because Jesus Christ took on human flesh, suffered and died for my sin, and he rose again for my justification. That is why I will be blameless, and that is why you will be blameless at the day of Christ. Not because of anything that I will do, but because Christ has done it for me. Period. That's it. And we grow in our trust of that truth, and we grow in our reliance on him. We grow in our desire to put away sin, not because we figured out some trick to do so, but because God is faithful to sanctify his people through his word and spirit, just as he promised. So notice how our passage for today ends. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so we know that this is true. God the Son did not take on human flesh to save a people for himself and then abandon them to their own devices to figure it all out on their own. God the Son came to earth to rescue his people, period. He did this in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And now he has not left us on our own. He is faithful, and he will do it. And so we need to trust the means that he has ordained. Trust that as, as you've heard the word today, that it's going to work. That's why biblically framed worship is filled with scripture. When we say that we believe the Bible, it isn't just for the moral stuff or just for the social stuff. We believe that the Bible is sufficient to do all those things, but also to grow us in faith and holiness and righteousness. We will hear it and the Spirit will be at work. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. So this is a clear passage. There's plenty to come away with, but I want to draw out two specific applications for us as we leave from here and we step out into God's world today. First, trust the will of God for your life. Again, as I stated, this isn't something secret or hidden. You don't need to go out into the wilderness and see if you can figure out what you need to do next. As we've seen today, the will of God for us is to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances, to abstain from evil. Now, honestly, as, 
as you think about that list, it, it might be easier to go out on some sort of quest in the wilderness and try and figure out the will of God because those things are hard. It's hard to do those things. But it truly starts with an understanding of the mercy of God. It begins when we, we trust that he is sovereign, that he is in control. And so what do we do? We submit ourselves to him, not only for the big things, but also for our daily growing in holiness and faith. It's one of those things that is easier said than done, but it's important. We need to trust the gospel. And I believe that is why we are so easily distracted from trusting this will of God for us, because it is hard. It is hard. It is so much easier to pursue the hypothetical and the secret than it is to actually rejoice, to actually pray, and to actually be thankful. Those things are hard. But may we pursue them in faith and trust. Secondly, trust the promise of God. As you step out to do these things, trust the promise of God. Don't think that you're gonna do this on your own. God is calling you to this, and he is faithful. He will surely do it. I think one of the greatest frustrations in the Christian life is that we try over and over to do what we are called to do on our own power. And as we think about Christmas coming up, let's contemplate what we've learned from God's holy word this year. God created the world, and when it fell into sin, did he abandon it? No. He made a promise that he would save his people. And that promise was then jeopardized by a brother murdering his brother. It was jeopardized by unrighteousness and by violence and by a flood. But God rescued a people for himself through the ark. It was in danger, as we're looking at relatively recently in Genesis. It was in danger because of infertility. But what did God do? He keeps the promise. It was in danger from Pharaoh's killing the firstborn males in Egypt. It was in danger when David was king and he was to be the one of the promise and his sons were trying to overthrow him. It was in danger when a crazed grandmother tried to kill all the children of the promise in the Old Testament. All these things are happening. But what did God do? He was faithful. And Jesus came. He was, Jesus came. He was faithful to keep his promise to save his people. It seemed at every turn like it was going to be shot down, but Jesus came. And so if God can save his people for himself through floods, through famines, through all these things, he most surely can be faithful to bring you to repentance and faith and holiness in your life. We know. Because just, in just a few days, we're going to remember this truth of God keeping his promise. Because God the Son takes on human flesh. God kept his promise. And as I said, if he is faithful to keep his promise in the face of famine, murder, tyranny, he's not going to abandon you. He's not. He has promised to be at work in you through his word and spirit, and he will do it.
I'm going to go back. I want us to do something. The last full sentence, he who calls, I want us to say that together and believe it. And believe it. So let's say that together as we close out today. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.